Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends, feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, the fallout from the death of George Floyd continues. How will the world react? U.S. President Donald Trump has called himself the president of law and order and puts a 7 p.m. curfew on America. Will it help? And an early investigation report into the crash of a snowbird plane last month suggests a bird strike could be responsible. It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. The protests continue in regard to the death of George Floyd uh, last week. Yesterday was uh, a week had passed since his death, and this is still continuing yet. uh, Well, we'll talk about the president of the United States at a later break. Uh, We do when we touch on a more political aspect of this. But in the meantime, let's talk about uh, what this community is going through, the pain and and. If this time, uh, things will change. Let's bring in Dexter Voisin, Dean of Factor in Wentish, Faculty of Social Work and Professor, University of Toronto. And is with us now, author of America the Beautiful and Violent, Black Youth and Neighborhood Trauma in Chicago. Dexter is with us now. Dexter, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. Yes, thank you so much for having me on the program. So, uh, Dexter, my first concern, we have seen this before, maybe not to the extent, maybe not brought to our attention, maybe not put in our face this way where it is in plain view the way it has been, although many may argue that. Uh, Is it different this time? Well, you know, I'm hoping it would be different this time. The reality is uh, these acts of structural and police violence have been happening across the United States for for over 200 years. Um, So it it goes all the way back to to slavery, to Jim Crow, to the new Jim Crow, which is represented by the industrialized uh, prison population. You know, America is by far one of the, the wealthiest, most influential uh, countries in the world. Um, you have millions of immigrants, refugees flocking to her shores, to the shiny city sitting on a hill. But as James Baldwin, uh, written so eloquently in the 1960s, he talks about the black child growing up in the shadows of the stars and stripes. And, and when you think about it, America has the highest child infant mortality rate in the world, the highest rate of adult obesity, the highest prison industrial complex in the world, uh, the highest murder rate in the world among all of her industrialized peers. And in part, all of these ills are disproportionately born on the necks of black Americans, all right, who suffer these injustices. So this is called social activists, scientists, individuals, like myself, who, who study police violence, who is a part of the black community, talked about the existence of the two Americas. So, so this has existed for decades. Um, what we are seeing with George Floyd is something that we've seen time and time again. So it's really a matter of systemic racism, systemic social inequality, that in many cases, Americans and other folks around the world have become immune to. Someone has said that racism, systemic racism, is like dust particles in the air, that it's there, but we go blinded to it. And the only time that we really see it is when a light is shined on it. So the light that has been shined because of George Floyd's execution is now showing a light to something that has always been there. And let's not forget, it's not just in the United States, it's in, it's in Canada as well. So you can think about the indigenous people of Canada, there are some communities where there's no clean drinking water, right? And we're talking about this taking place in the midst of COVID-19, the lack of ability of communities to protect themselves because of structural and social inequality. So this is something that happens all around the globe, um, structural inequality. We have our challenges here in Canada, but certainly the challenges in the United States is linked to a global struggle 
around marginalized and subjugated groups. So will things happen? Will things change? Well, the reality is systems only respond to systems. So in order to make things change, we really need a systematic approach to respond to the system of social inequality. So marching is part of that, but we are also talking about economic boycotts that have to be a part of that. Every individual who believes in social justice also has to speak up to that, not just members of the black community, but members of the white community, of the brown community, of the indigenous communities. Celebrities need to be a part of that in terms of speaking out. So we really need a systematic response to systematic social inequality. And I'm hopeful that this time things will change, um, you know, and the, 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 the opposite of hope is despair, right? So I hang my hat on the, the side of hope. Many have, uh, and as you've alluded to, uh, said this is an American issue, not a, ca- a Canadian issue. Some say it's a policing issue. As you point out, though, this is a societal issue, and these systems have fallen to where they are because of where society is. Is that accurate? It's very accurate. It's very accurate. And, and keep in mind that if we are talking about systems of male privilege, we are talking about systems of privilege based on nationality, we're talking about systems of privilege based on heterosexism in terms of of, of sexual uh, orientation, superiority, whatever the ism or the social injustice is, these systems are self-perpetuating. And as one writer says, power is never abdicated. Power has to be seized. So what does that mean? So where there's male privilege, males are not going to voluntarily give up male privilege um, for, for sexual equality, where there is systems of power hold on to that privilege, right? And only because of political or social or economic action are they really forced to elude some of that power and usher in social equality. So this is what we are seeing now from a moment to a movement in terms of groups of people coming together and saying that the murder of our black and brown brothers and sisters is not okay. But the reality is this murder has been taking place insidiously. If you look at the child welfare system, the majority of the individuals in the child welfare system are black and brown individuals. You look at the prison system, it's black and brown individuals. So this stifling of of second-class citizenship has been happening systematically across many types of of service systems. This is just a manifestation of that. With the history that you first explained with with American history and now brought into a more broader scope with societal uh, systems and such, with a history with the history that is there, how do you move this discussion forward? You talked about marches. Then what? How do we actually change this? How do we? How how does society react to the killing of a black man in in front of everybody's eyes? How how can we take that and actually change things? Well, so can we? You're asking for the actual action step. So part of it is one: we have to start having an honest conversation about race, not just in America, but also race in Canada and racism in Canada and social inequality in Canada. So again, we look at COVID-19 and we know that in the United States, as we absolutely suspect is happening here in Canada as well, that this is falling disproportionately on the backs of black and brown individuals. And all this is related to social inequality, and poverty. Poverty is a disease to our collective health. And the reality is there's a racialization of poverty in the United States, as well as a racialization of poverty in Canada. So let's just talk about poverty in the United States for a second. It's no longer a wage gap. Folks have talked about a wage chasm. At a current rate, it would take black families 228 years to achieve income parity with the average white family in the United States. Similar patterns are also happening in Canada with the indigenous people 
and would racialize poor in Canada. So one, we need to have an honest conversation about race, about racism, about social inequality. We need to have an honest conversation and not tiptoe around it. Uh, we need to collect data in terms of health disproportionalities, uh, educational disproportionalities. We need to pretend no longer that we live in a colorblind society, right? And that while we strive to have all Canadians value the same, we realize that all Canadians do not have the same experience. So we need to collect racialized identity uh, data. Two, we need to realize that we are all part of a global society. And I think COVID has reminded us of this. The social ills in one society impacts us all. So why care about these issues is because it affects us all. Every time you see an image of George Floyd, we are traumatized, not just members of the black and brown community, but white individuals are traumatized by seeing this. It's a collective trauma we all experience as a result of this. Progressive groups that uh, focus on social equality, individuals of all races who believe in, in social and economic justice, need to also support those groups, support those groups with their efforts, with their finances. When they are called for economic boycotts, they also need to be a part of that. Individuals in positions of power need to realize that racism is not dependent upon the act of, of individual characters, but racism is embedded in societal structures. So even if someone were, were not to say a racist word for the next 24 hours, racism will still exist because it's embedded in our institutions, in government, in schools, in service centers, in, in social services. It's embedded throughout society. So we need to start looking at our service deliveries, we need to look at our policies, at our politics, and make sure that it is inclusive. When we are thinking about educational programs, when we are thinking about service delivery, make sure that the voices of racialized individuals are part of those conversations so that we are working with those communities and not acting on those communities. So they're, they're really very concrete things that we can all do to move towards uh, a more equal and just society. Uh, we've only got about a minute left, Dexter. What are your thoughts? What should we be teaching the young people? We hear the next generation can solve this. What? How do we present this? What do you say to the young people who are watching this all unfold? Well, I think the young people need to teach us. You know, I think the young people, look at the folks who are marching mm. in the streets. It's the young people. So we really need to listen to the future leaders of tomorrow. And we really need to be taught by them. Listen to their voices. Listen to their diverse perspectives. And we've seen young people of every race, every creed, every color in the streets. We need to understand the lesson that they have learned that our generation has not yet learned. Dexter, fascinating discussion. We'll chat again. Thank you so much for the time. Be well. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. You know, it's difficult to watch what we have been watching over the last week, including that video of George Floyd as he is slowly losing his life. Uh, how do we have this conversation with our kids? How do we have this conversation with young people? How do we teach them the lesson that the older generations just don't seem to learn? Let's bring in Rena Patel, parenting experts, guidance, uh, parenting expert, guidance counselor, and licensed educational psychologist, uh, board certified behavior analyst. Uh, analyst. Rena, thanks for the time. I uh, hope you're doing well. Thank you. How do we address this situation in regard to the George uh, Floyd uh, murder uh, with our kids? How do we explain racism to our kids? It's a good question. We have to start by being open and honest with ourselves and really understanding that this is something of systematic change. Uh, what generations above us, generations like ourselves, uh, have learned behavior and ideology that has been passed on. And so it's never too late to change. And children as young as three understand that there's differences in color. And we have to be open. We have to say some people get treated unfairly based on their skin color, culture, gender, and religion. 
And by doing this, we're going to help prepare them to challenge these issues when they arise. And how much of this is learned behavior from us? Um, all of it. Uh, when they're young, three to five years old, they don't have a certain positive or negative emotion associated with their curiosity. They are aware that there are people out there, there's other children uh, who have speak different languages, who have different colored skin, but they don't have a, one bias, negative or, or positive. Mm-hmm. And so it really is shaped by what we as parents do, even non-verbally, what children see on television and what they are see themselves when they're out in society. How important is it to have this discussion with them? Absolutely important. Staying silent is not the answer. Children will make up their own mind, and it is really up to us. We have to empower them with the right information. We have to educate them. There are great books out there. There are tools. I mean, I even start as when you go and purchase a toy for them, make sure that there's some diversity in it. It is important not to look for just similarities, look for those differences and celebrate those differences. When you're watching television, make sure you ask those questions. What's happening? Why are those groups separating? Do we see any type of stereotypical behaviors here and why and why is that uh, important or maybe why is that not a good thing? It's really important to have that dialogue. Rena Patel has been with us, parenting expert, guidance counselor, uh, talking about parents and their kids and the discussion they need to have involving racism. Rena, thanks for the time and insight. Be well. Thank you. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Let's talk about COVID-19 and uh, the World Health Organization while we try to juggle all of these topics uh, during the show. Uh, Even though the World Health Organization has praised China for its speedy response behind the scenes, sources say that one of the most significant delays uh, with the COVID-19 pandemic was getting information they needed to fight the spread. To find more, or, uh, to talk more about all of this, Andrew Cadell is with us, Global Affairs Institute and on the line now. Andrew, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Uh, it's always a pleasure, Scott. Uh, I want to read you the first piece of this uh, article, and it's from the uh, Associated Press. It's on our website now. China frustrated by WHO uh, by de- uh, delaying coronavirus info despite uh, public praises. Uh, throughout January, the World Health Organization publicly praised China for what it called a speedy response to the new coronavirus. It repeatedly thanked the Chinese government for sharing uh, the genetic map of the virus immediately and said its work and commitment of transparency were very impressive and beyond words. But behind the scenes, a much different story, one of significant delays by China uh, and considerable frustration among the WHO officials over not getting the information they needed to fight the spread of the deadly virus. Uh, That's what the Associated Press had found. How can the World Health Organization be frustrated by China and praising them at the same time? Well, that's, you know, that's the nature of diplomacy. And uh, this is what uh, international organizations are involved in diplomacy the same way way as uh, countries are. And, um, you know, it it actually gives me a lot of great faith in my former colleagues there because, you know, I, I worked in the WHO in the 1990s. And many of the people who were junior officers with me at that time, I was an information officer, they were doctors, are now in senior positions like, like Mike Ryan, who's, who has to go before the, the international press on a, on a daily basis. And I, every day I see him, he looks more and more uncomfortable. <clears throat> and it's glad, I'm glad to see that in those uh, documents that were released, that he was pressing the Chinese and pressing the Chinese rep in uh, uh, w, the WHO rep in China, uh, for for information, because you know Mike is like a longshoreman. He's a he's a big bluff guy, and he doesn't take any um, <clears throat> any BS, if I can say that. Um, and uh, I I'm I'm not surprised to see that he was being so so aggressive because he would want to know the facts. Um, it appears that at one point from from this document that um, uh, that the WHO was aware of this but didn't want to irritate them. Are are we are we being honest and forthright through this diplomacy? Well, it's always what goes beyond on behind the curtain, you know, and that's very much what I think happened in this case. Um, but uh, you know, it shows that that uh, for example, uh, Global Affairs Canada used to have an official in China who had a, an expertise in health after SARS. 
and was there for a number of years, and we never renewed that position, and we probably should have, in order to have our own information be, you know, coming through, rather than it being filtered through the, both the official and unofficial channels of the WHO. But it also shows there's a need for an inquiry because um, <clears throat> the the people in the in the on the eighth floor, who are the the, the d- director general and his people, are very much the the sort of the diplomats. And the people who are the working uh, uh, slugs, who are doing the real work—the doctors and the and the epidemiologists and the information people—they very often are having have a tough time trying to uh, trying to work with the political uh, level that's in in the director general's office. I had many clashes myself when I worked there with the director general at the time, who. Um, who wanted to? Uh, uh, who was a bit on the left wing side and would wanted to uh, be more critical of the United States? And uh, and I said I didn't think that was a very good idea because the U.S. at the time was uh, our largest donor, and I didn't think it was it was smart to be biting the hand that fed us. Uh, that being said, now America seems to be withholding funding or certainly threatening that uh, China seems to be contributing more. Uh, is that problematic? Well, it is in a way, except that I think that the fact that these that this information leaked was quite deliberate. What the WHO, certainly the people on the lower floors, I think, wanted to show was they actually were working very hard in pressing China, so that that uh, maybe um, uh, some people in in Congress, which you know, according to the United States Constitution, the president can sign a treaty, but Congress really has to ratify it. So for the Americans to pull out of the WHO, uh, it's really a, a dicey question as to whether Congress would allow it. So I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I think that 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 question is really yet to be settled. And when it is, then perhaps uh, some of this positive news coming out of the WHO will influence some of the the congressional people, especially the, the Democratic Party. Does China have too much influence over the World Health, uh, World Health Organization? Well, you know, how, do we, how do we place that? Yes, and the problem is that you have a, a, a director general who owes his election to China because they lobbied effectively for him against a, a very good candidate from Britain who was actually a medical doctor because Dr. Tedros has a Ph.D. in epidemiology, but he's not a doctor. <clears throat> and, um, and, and he was from a country, Ethiopia, that was you know very much on the within the spectrum of China's influence. So it's not a good thing, and, I, and I've called for his resignation a number of times, both in my weekly column in the Hill Times and, 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 uh, and elsewhere, I think, on your program. So, you know, that's, that's certainly something that should be considered, and there should be a full inquiry, because, you know, even though China does have a lot of influence and it does have a lot of money, it's not the right kind of influence, and it's not the money that you really want if they're using it in order to prevent information that's really important to the world, well, like this pandemic, from getting out. What can we learn from this frustration? What can we learn from this moving forward? Well, I think, I think the main point is, to, is, is that we really have to listen to the people who are in the positions of, of, of real authority, you know, the doctors and, and the, the, the epidemiologists, the medical professionals, rather than simply listening to the to the political level and with any organization, especially within the UN. You need to know what the people who are doing the real work are thinking. And I think the second thing is that we have to make sure that, uh, uh, that, that uh, there's a balance in terms of who's in charge of the different organizations uh, within the UN system, because currently there are four Chinese citizens in positions of authority in key organizations in the UN, plus Dr. Tedros. So out of about 12 really important organizations that have influence around the world in the UN, you've got five that are, 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 uh, with, have, have uh, significant Chinese influence or people who have, been, who have been put in place by China. Uh, in something completely rela- uh, unrelated but yet related, how is China viewing what is happening in the United States right now? Uh, since COVID-19, China has been the world's bad guy. How, how is China viewing what's happening in the U.S. now? Well, you know, it's, it's, it's in China's interest for the United States to be in turmoil. And um, I would not be surprised if China was not contributing to it. I'm, I'm sure they're delighted for one thing, but I would not be surprised if there aren't Chinese agents involved in some way 
supporting the turmoil. Uh, do you think this will have any bearing moving forward on these discussions? Well, especially States, around Hong Kong. Well, I mean, the United States is in, is in a weakened position. You've got a president you don't know what he's going to do from day to day or hour to hour. And, um, and you've got uh, uh, the problems of Taiwan, the South China Sea, and, of course, Hong Kong. And, uh, you know, Canada can make all the <clears throat> noises at once, but, it, you know, it's really when the, the superpowers get involved that, that things, uh, things actually change. Now, the American initiative to, to not accept uh, goods or to, to re- restrict the, the number of, of uh, imports from Hong Kong is a positive thing because it will give it gives China notice that that as if Hong Kong is considered to be China and not a separate uh, 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 territory <clears throat> that uh, the United States won't trade with it that's mm. going to have a significant effect and there'll be a lot of companies that will move their operations out of Hong Kong and out of China to other parts of Asia because they don't want to have to do business with China so those are good things but in terms of uh, international diplomacy uh, a week in the United States doesn't do uh, much good in terms of having any mm. impact on uh, change in China. Andrew Cadell has been with us, Canadian Global Affairs Institute. Andrew, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Be Anytime, well. Anytime, Scott. Always a pleasure. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right. We remember, uh, my goodness, uh, in the last several weeks, months, we've been, happen- uh, we've been having uh, around the world here in Canada, my goodness, COVID-19. Uh, we're certainly seeing what we're happening with uh, uh, the demonstrations that are going on uh, in regard to the death of George Floyd and also tragedy uh, earlier on when the snowbirds, uh, one of the snowbirds crashing, taking the life of uh, one of the occupants on board. And at a time when they were going across the country trying to, um, to, to levitate us all and try to at least give us uh, some sort of optimism. Uh, and we certainly uh, were, were touched once and, and, and devastated once we found out that uh, uh, one of the captains from the, uh, from the Snowbirds, who was actually uh, their press agent, their press secretary, their PR person, uh, had, uh, had died in the crash after a preliminary investigation uh, report rather into the crash. One of the Snowbirds planes may have, uh, the one that obviously went down, may have uh, come in close proximity of a bird and there might have been, even been a bird strike going into uh, one of uh, our into the engine intake, which could have caused this. To talk more about all of this, Robert uh, Kakonis is with us, Air Trav Inc., and is on the line now. Robert, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. No problem. Give us an update here, Robert. What do we know as of uh, the last uh, day or two? Well, the first thing I want to caution listeners is that any time there's an aviation incident, whether it's civil or military, it's usually a, a, a culmination of a cascading series of events, uh, and we are very, very early still in this investigation. So, correct, over the last uh, 24 to 36 hours, uh, two things. One is that the military investigators zeroed in fairly quickly that there was an image of a bird near the right intake uh, uh, of the uh, engine of the uh, of the Snowbird aircraft that, that crashed. Um, and secondly, there was uh, <clears throat> some uh, concern about the ejection seat in that aircraft, and in fact, there's been an effort underway by Department of Defense to uh, potentially upgrade uh, those particular ejection seats. But again, it doesn't mean there was a problem with the seat, but it's something they're certainly looking at very closely. Uh, in regard to, we've all seen the pictures and, and uh, the highlight of, of what appeared to be a bird very, very close to uh, to that jet. I- explain what was there, uh, those intakes. There is one jet engine on one of these. Is that accurate? Is that correct? Uh, t- correct. And there's two, uh, two air intakes. Um, and so, you know, if, if a bird is ingested, and, and by the way, every day in North America, there are dozens of uh, bird strikes. Um, virtually all of them, you know, land or, or continue on with no issue, but they do cause, uh, you know, over a billion dollars of damage per year. Of course, one of the most famous was that U.S. Airways Airbus passenger jetliner mm. that was uh, glide landed into the Hudson River in New York about uh, 12 years ago. But if you go back to the video of this particular incident, you know, it's that after takeoff, both uh, the two jets side by side and the, the, the aircraft that went down 
we're not going to do a high bank. And, and the very likely reason for that mm. is that the pilot needed to gain altitude for one of three possible factors. One, it would be possible that the engine would uh, would fire up again. Secondly, just to to give some some altitude. Uh, should they they have to eject? And as one example, so you know you just don't want to eject too close to the ground. So by gaining that altitude, he gave uh, both he and then tragically the uh, the uh, the other uh, uh, occupant uh, uh, you know enough time to, to to bail out, but it didn't work out for for her, of course. What do we know about the ejection seat system? And it's uh, is it two seats that go out at once? Is it two separately? What do we know there? Uh, I believe within milliseconds of each other, once that is once that is pulled, um, the the ejection seat itself uh, is is aged. It goes back quite a bit of time. I must I must caution that this aircraft is is exceptionally well maintained by the Canadian military, regardless of the fact that these are approaching um, 60 years of age. But you know the truth is is that technology has passed by uh, the aircraft, and uh, there's been a lot of people you know calling for. Uh, uh, for the Canadian military to update the, uh, the the fleet, so but that doesn't mean that that was a cause for the crash. It's just a an observation. You know, sixty year old jet technology mm. has long since moved on. Sixty uh, year old jet, uh, newer ones better able to withstand a bird strike. It's hard to say. It depends. You know where it impacts you know, in the engine. It depends upon uh, the size of the bird. It depends upon. Uh, which portion of flight, of course, you know, takeoff and landing are the two most critical phases of flight, and uh, and that's what happened to the U.S. Airways flight as well, too. Um, so, so it's hard to say, you know, at this point, you know, possibly, uh, but you know, I don't believe you know, if an air, if a if an aircraft engine ingests a bird big enough for the wrong time, uh, you know, possibly would be critical to even to a newer aircraft. But there have been a number of snowbirds incidents over the last. Uh, uh, for example, 15 years, there is always uh, an element of risk involved with the aerial um, aerial demonstration flights. Just like in combat, there is a, a level of uh, a risk involved as well. Too, you're flying high-performance jets in many cases uh, close to the ground in uh, in aerial maneuvers, and uh, and that is always a possibility and as a risk that all the crews uh, take. Uh, will the snowbirds, will we see them back in the air now as a result of this, or will there have to be further investigation? Well, they won't be back in the air until the first phase of this investigation you know, uh, comes to a close. They have to determine uh, decisively what the specific issue was and if there's any uh, threat to ongoing air operations of the, uh, of the fleet. I believe they will uh, get back in the air, and the, the reality is we know in this country you know, how brutal uh, military procurement is. Um, you know, they've been looking at this ejection seat upgrade for probably uh, three or more years already. It should be something that's done a lot faster. Um, you know, for the people calling for a brand new fleet uh, or an updated fleet of aircraft for the Snowbirds, which I think, you know, you know do a, an exceptional service for, uh, you know, instilling national pride across the country and even taking the, you know, the Maple Leaf to uh, air shows in, in other countries like the U.S., um, but, uh, you know, given the fact that we're going to be bankrupt as a country because of the response to this COVID virus, I don't think we're going to see anytime soon an updated fleet for the Snowbirds, uh, unfortunately. Um, if they do update the fleet of the Snowbirds, would this not be something that would be used for other military missions, or would these just solely be for the Snowbirds? And as you mentioned, uh, well, you're trying to pro- procure uh, military uh, supplies over the years. Obviously, it's it's a political hot potato. So are they going to spend all that kind of money on show jets or something that is more practical and something that could be used for both? You know, the Tudor jets uh, historically were used as also as trainers for the, uh, for the, uh, for the Air Force. Um, you're right, it's expensive to have that, but it depends, you know, over what lifespan you're going to have these jets in service, you amortize it over. In the case of the Snowbirds, how old are these aircraft? Sixty years old. Um, but I think, you know, first and foremost, in this country, we need to make sure that we have the right um, um, jet fighter aircraft for our uh, men and women that fly them. And of course, we've had this ongoing uh, procurement exercise, which has gotten bogged down in politics. Uh, we have to make sure, you know, the frontline defense forces are taken care of first and foremost, and then after that. Um, the uh, the demonstration point. I still think it's a incredibly valuable role to have uh, to have the Air Force to be able to demonstrate 
uh, to Canadians, uh, you know, what, what we're all about and uh, what we can do. And uh, crowds throughout the country are thrilled when they see them. So I think there's high value from, you have to use some sort of nation building or nation supporting exercises as a country. And I think, you know, the, the Snowbirds has been a great, uh, a great mm-hmm. delivery mechanism for that. But again, unfortunately, I think it's going to be uh, still quite a while until we see a replacement. Robert Kokonis has been with us from AirTrav Incorporated. A, pre- a preliminary investigation into the crash of one of the snowbirds uh, may suggest that a bird strike could be uh, responsible, although there is more further investigation uh, to be had. Robert, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. You're welcome. You too. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Uh, let us bring in Henry Jasek, professor of political science, McMaster University. He is with us now. Henry, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Hope you're well. I'm doing well on this beautiful uh, Tuesday. Yeah. <laughs> yes, good for looking for the positive, Henry. Uh, uh, you've been at, anyways. You've been at this game an awful long time. What do you what do you think? What are your thoughts when you look uh, at what's happening in the world and specifically south of the border? Well, I mean, this is something that's been happening, you know, over the last 50, 60 years. The the people, you know, there's been these periodic you know, very strong demonstrations when people, you know, particularly people of color, but joined by a lot of white people, too, you know, and a lot of people, leaders in all religious groups and many other people. And you'd have, you, you, you would have, uh, you know, oftentimes uh, things would, uh, wouldn't would happen. What, what except in one ex- example uh, was the, in the 1960s in, uh, in the country when you had Martin Luther King and his non-violent uh, protest movements, there, there were a big, uh, there was a big change, uh, abetted, of course, by uh, the assassination of uh, um, of K- uh, John Kennedy. And so, when Lyndon Johnson came in, a Southerner who was vice president becomes president. He essentially takes really good advantage of the situation of Kennedy's assassination, plus the the demonstrations against very obvious political discrimination against uh, uh, black people, particularly in the South, and to bring in uh, major, major legislation. But after that, uh, you know, it's been a lot harder, uh, particularly in northern cities, to, uh, to, to essentially get changes uh, in the uh, grievances, the real grievances that the black community suffers from in, in those areas. So it's, uh, it's, you know, whether this is going to break the camel's back or not, I don't know. Certainly not while Trump is in power. I mean, certainly um, Trump uh, energizes those people who, want, who are, want to become more radical, and it also energizes uh, those people who uh, believe, like Trump, that what you've got to do is sort of crush these uh, demonstrations, including, including peaceful demonstrations. So it's uh, at least through, up through the election, it's going to be, I think, a very bitter time in the United States. And then we add, of course, you talked about the virus, and we know uh, black people are twice as likely as white people in the U.S. to die and to get seriously ill from the virus. But the other thing, of course, is the economy uh, in the United States where the people who've really suffered have been the service workers, and the blacks are dispos- in the United States are more likely to be in these service occupations they can't, like you and me, uh, do work from home because we, we, we have occupations where we can do that. But, you know, the service workers have to be dealing with people and oftentimes, you know, people who are sick. And so they, uh, they, they, they suffer a lot. They lose their jobs. Or if they don't have to lose their jobs, they're in a, ver- a job where they have to deal with uh, ill people and, and worry about their health. So it's, uh, all those things have come together right now. And it's the beginning of summertime. And people are tired of all the suffering they've gone through in the last three months. And, you know, boom, this all explodes. So do you think it will be uh, the frustration that people are feeling anyway in regard to uh, the COVID-19 pandemic? Or is it the fact that we have this video? We we see for minutes and minutes and minutes and minutes this going on. That was a spark, yeah. Does very, that the, the fact that we have that video does right. that make it different this time? Oh, it's a very clear spark, you know. And actually, you know, in the civil in the civil rights uh, uh, 
advances that the U.S. made in the 1960s, you had these pictures of southern sheriffs and law enforcement people with dogs, uh, usually German shepherds, that were very, you know, trained to be really nasty dogs, you know, ripping the clothes off of, uh, non, uh, of peaceful demonstrators in the south. We have classic pictures of that, and that was very, very important, uh, that people could see that. Those images are still very striking today. But this video we have, and, you know, we could almost count the seconds. We could hear him saying he can't breathe. We could hear the onlooker saying, you know, please let him up. We hear one of the other three policemen that are with him, you know, you, you better let him up. You know, this is, you know, we can hear, hear the comments, maybe not all the yeah. world exactly, but we can go through those excruciating nine minutes. It's just, I just find it so horrible to watch. But, you know, it, it, it really, and of course, for... Most people who, you know, would just see tremendous anger seeing that video. And so you know, it's like, you know, throwing a, a, a lighted candle uh, on top of a keg of dynamite. I mean, yeah. it, you, know, you know, you could almost predict that was going to happen. Uh, uh, Donald Trump doesn't say much about the actual killing itself, uh, instead reacting to the demonstrations that are caused by it. And again, uh, pointing to the the radicals within the demonstration who are causing the problems, not the peaceful people who are actually protesting and 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 how this is resonating across the the, the world, not let alone the nation. Um, uh, what what about how he has handled this? Has his divisiveness finally caught up to him? We know that that's his game. He divides. However, during a time of crisis, you cannot divide. You have to unite. So where is he in all of this? Yeah, he's terribly conflicted. We know he has a history of discriminating against uh, uh, black Americans in his business. Those are well known in terms of renting them apartments in his apartment buildings. That's all well known. So he does have that history. We know that he received tremendous amount of support from older you know, white people who are quite conservative and in the South for people who really still, you know, have discriminatory attitudes towards black Americans. Uh, so that was his base. He, he received uh, only 13 percent of the black vote in 2016. So he doesn't feel that he really, you know, has a connection with them. Uh, and so, you know, he I, I was waiting that he would do something to get on the you know, on the side of the the people of those type of people again who supported him, uh, but he's got a problem. I think he's smart enough to know that there's you know the the 2020 is not the same as 2016 in terms of the voters. A lot of his voters were are, are quite elderly and many which is get strong support. And quite frankly, over the last four years, a number of those people will not be voting again because either they're very sick or they've passed away. Hmm. And the young voters are very, very much, and young people are very, very uh, much against him. Uh, and uh, so he, he had to worry about, he has to worry about that. He has to worry about the fact there's 40 million, uh, you know, black uh, people, uh, people in the United States, and he won essentially. You know, one reason he won in 2016, many of them did not go to the polls. They were, you know, they couldn't relate to Hillary Clinton, so she didn't excite them yeah. at all. And, uh, I mean, her organization, you know, really didn't work hard to get out the black vote uh, in, in 2016. And um, so he's got to worry about those people really being activated. And he was, you know, I think early on, a week ago, figured, you know, I can't do anything to really stimulate these people to vote. Um, and as a matter of fact, we saw yesterday the, the brother of, of the murdered man who yeah. said, don't demonstrate, don't, don't uh, pillage, don't rob, don't, don't be violent. There's only one solution here. Vote, vote, vote. Hmm. And, and, and that's, I think that's what Donald Trump was afraid of. But it was, a, it, was a, it was a situation where he was uncomfortable. He was conflicted between, you know, having to, you know, look like he was sympathetic to the problems here, but that's not really the real Donald Trump. But then, as the demonstrations turned into, you know, sort of violent acts in the dark of night after nightfall would come, then that sort of allowed him to have a target that he really felt comfortable with, and the target was those people who were engaging in violent behavior at nighttime. So that gave him the excuse to act like a, 
a tough guy, uh, which he really, of course, he enjoys being the tough guy. And we know that uh, he has a long history of praising tough people, uh, of tough leaders. Go back to even the uh, uprisings they had in China many years ago, Tiananmen Square, where although he, you know, he didn't say he completely agreed with the Chinese authorities, but he admired them for the way they put down the demonstrations. When probably at that time, and probably now, most Americans would say that was very, very bad what the Chinese Communist government did. So now he feels very. You know, he has now a target that he can attack, and it's those people at night who are engaging in various types of uh, terrorist acts, whether they're looting stores, setting fires, throwing pieces of concrete or rocks at police. And so he can now play, you know, now he can play the law and order card that he really enjoys and play, you know, play the commander-in-chief role. And then and he seems to be really relishing that, and I don't think he's going to let go of that. Yeah, he's claiming to be the president of Law and Order last That's night. Right. Uh, I'm going to play this report. Global News Washington Bureau Chief Jackson Proskow uh, filed this this morning. He said there's a difference between what is happening in Washington and what is happening in other U.S. cities. There's now a higher security fence that was added overnight to the park uh, with the White House just behind it. Uh, they are expanding the perimeter uh, area here. So that's uh, one of the visible changes that's taking place. There were reports of riots and looting in more than 100 U.S. cities last night. Really, the difference is in the level of force that's being deployed, especially here in Washington, D.C., where the federal government has much more control. And it seems as though the president is almost using Washington as an example of what he would like to see in other cities and what he is threatening to do if he would, in fact, deploy the military to those cities, as he hinted at yesterday. Here in Washington, various federal agencies, including Customs and Border Patrol officers, have been activated to patrol the streets. We saw military helicopters flying very low last night over protests to disperse the crowds with the rotor wash, the winds that come out of those helicopters. And it seems as though things are being set up for further confrontations right across the country uh, if things are not brought under control by local authorities. Uh, Global News Washington Bureau Chief Jackson Proskow, uh, and uh, with us now Henry Jasek from McMaster University. Henry, can can he can Donald Trump muscle his way out of this? I mean, the 7 p.m. curfew, all of that. Well, he was able to do that in Washington because he took deep, uh, direct control of the military and the police. Uh, he he can do he has the authority to do that. It's a lot more difficult in the states because if a state governor says, "I don't want your your help here." I don't, it's, it's going to be very difficult for, you know, the military is going to be, especially the military leaders, and there's been reports of that they're, they're quite upset about this, the, the ones in the Pentagon, because, you know, there, there's a tradition they're not supposed to use American troops for domestic or police purposes inside the United States. And if a governor who's supposed to be, you know, the person who's primarily responsible for law and order inside their state says, I don't want the help, I don't want the military, this is going to be, you know, a very interesting conflict and an upset for military leadership and the political leadership inside the state. So I'm not, I'm not really sure what's going to happen here. I one, you know, maybe, you know, Trump will try it and it won't work. Now, if he does try that and he gets rebuffed and he can't really make that pay, uh, uh, make uh, make the military go into a state, um, he's going to look pretty bad. So I don't know. What he's going to do here? Is he actually going to try it? Does he think he can get away with it? Certainly, he could go into a, a southern state that might have a, a Republican governor who who was willing to go along with Trump. He could send in troops there. But you know, some a lot of the big northern states, uh, that's going to be a real problem. I can't see him going into New York State or Michigan or Illinois or even Minnesota. Yeah, so it, it, I'm not sure what what's next on his game plan here. Uh, we were talking to an expert uh, yesterday uh, in regard to protests and such, and they basically said there's there's three different groups. The majority, which are the protesters, the people that are there to just peacefully protest. Uh, then there's a small uh, group of extremists on both the left and the right who will just try to create hell. And then there's the, the bad guys in the world that will just come in and try to scoop up and loot anything that's left behind. Uh, Donald Trump seems to be uh, uh, focusing his attention on those extremist elements and not the majority who are protesting will that message get out and sooner or later does he not have to address the people the majority that are protesting peacefully yeah i think and they are going to mobilize people energize people against donald trump and and this is an election year and 
you know, the election year is not that, in American terms, is not far away. I mean, the election date, November 3rd. So it's not that far away. So he, he has to worry about those people being energized. Uh, certainly, and I think you're quite correct, there, there is a difference between the, the peaceful protesters during the day, for the most part, and the, these, these three groups that, that are out there at night, well, even maybe more than three, but certainly you, you touched on, on, on three groups. I would have counted the left, uh, the left radicals, uh, anarchists and those uh, mm-hmm. there. There's right-wing people who essentially just, I, I think, are, we don't know how many of them might be there, but I suspect there are some there to egg on the, the left-wingers yep. so to, to make this look worse than it is. And then you've got the looters who are, you know, TV loves to watch them go out of yeah. the, come out of stores with, you know, with all sorts of electronic equipment, um, and uh, so so the nighttime people are much more different. So uh, that's why the the Kirk, you know, the uh, uh, having a, a Kirk uh, curfew at uh, at a at a pretty early time. I think a, a five five p.m. curfew makes a lot of sense, but I think rather than immediately at five o'clock going up after all these protesters and moving them out. Like he did in Washington, um, you know, because th- I think that was a bad move on his part. Yeah. But, you know, the Minnesota strategy was you show a, 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 a big police force, a, a National Guard force, but the police are always in front, the police are always in charge, and they slowly push the people out. So if you can get people by 8 o'clock out of, that, out of those areas, out of the yeah. demonstrations, you're probably going to be okay. Because we know those, those people at night who want to cause trouble, they love to mix with, with uh, peaceful yeah. protesters. And then we start to have peaceful protesters and journalists getting hurt. Yeah. Uh, and, and then they point to it and say, oh, look at uh, those rubber bullets. They've taken out an eye of a photojournalist. They've killed or, or, or wounded this particular innocent person. And so you've got, you've got to clear those people out because they become un, unwittingly, I think, the uh, you know the shields for these uh, violent people who want to take advantage of it at night. Where do you see this going, Henry? Short term. Uh, uh, short term, I, I, you know, I think I think it's very difficult for protest leaders and people who want to you know shut this thing down or get especially shut it down at night. Because they they might have some sway uh, with the with the people who come out during the daytime, it's very difficult for them or uh, you know any any uh, any uh, uh, people in authority, whether it's uh, organizations, religions, political or economic or what have you, to to have control of those people who use the cover of night and the cover of the you know legitimate protesters to do mayhem. I mean they are. They're they just you know they're doing a rush. I mean they're getting a rush out of this. This is exciting for them. Smashing windows, you know, mm-hmm. throwing rocks at police. This is something that's very exciting for them. And and they're not and they're not going to listen to anybody. So you have to figure out how do you make it difficult for those people to function at night. And it, and I think the only one of the best ways is you've got to get the peaceful protesters home by by nightfall. I, th- I think I think that's and that seems to be was the Minnesota strategy and uh, it's it's a little harder you know it's not as quite as dramatic as what uh, Trump did but you've got to sort of get it to tone down get th- peaceful protests during the day but leave the night alone uh, you know for by yeah. by ev- try to get people out of those areas by nighttime. Henry Jasek has been with us, professor of political science, McMaster University, uh, speaking to. Uh, what is happening and what we see happening uh, not only in America but in various cities uh, around the world. Henry, thanks for the time as always. Be well. Okay, very good. Happy to talk on such an important subject. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.